Here are the things that we've covered in our series so far on the perseverance of the saints. We uh, just gave some introduction. We looked at some uh, sovereign things. God is the creator. God is the sustainer. And then, of course, we looked at God's work on the cross, which he did on our behalf. And so because of Jesus and because of his work on the cross, because of the blood that was shed, we have been redeemed, our sins have been forgiven, and we have been adopted as part of his family into his uh, household. And then uh, we started to look at the question, okay, so now I've been saved, I believe in Jesus, and my sins have been forgiven, can I lose that salvation? And some of the verses that we began to look at, first of all, had to do with salvation or the conditional aspect of our salvation, which uh, emphasizes our, our choice or our free will in the whole, mat- the whole matter. Now, we looked at this first one, and when we considered the grace of God being sent out towards us, and we looked at grace from several aspects, but God sends out His grace for salvation and for help and for encouragement and for strength and for provision for uh, our day-by-day things. He sends out that grace, but just because God gives us grace doesn't mean that we accept it or receive it or walk in it. We can resist it or reject it or make another decision contrary to the grace of God. So we looked at that last time. Tonight I want to look or pick it up with the possibility of deception. So here is the condition of man. We are still fallible. Just because we became Christians doesn't mean that uh, there is no longer the opportunity or the chance for us to make a mistake or to get off base or to just kind of go in the wrong direction. So we'll look at this next one, the possibility of deception. Now, before I go into some of the verses here, I want us to consider again, if you remember, I've been talking about how there is this uh, relationship between the sovereignty of God, which is where uh, not a not a bird falls without him knowing, and he has every hair numbered, and he's just in control of everything. God is sovereign. That on the one hand, and the free will of man on the other hand. Uh, do we have free will? How does that relate to God's sovereignty? Can I act against God's will? And so on and so forth. So there's this tension between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. And I've always kind of pictured the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, or this is the way that I've just always seen it presented and how I understood it, as, uh, you know, you have two equal and opposite forces just kind of vying for power. So you have God's will pressing in against us or upon us, and we press back upon God's will. And part of the Christian life is to just kind of line up our will with God's will. And uh, that's how I've uh, seen it or heard it presented or how I've understood it. But I think there's something else going on. There is a cooperation between the will of God or, and the, the, sovereignty, the sovereignty of God and the, the free will of man. There's a cooperative relationship there. And ultimately, I think the free will of man is just an aspect of God's sovereignty. God is able to do that. In other words, he, he creates, and when he creates us, he creates things or us with true free will. Now, I can't explain it or reconcile it any more than that, but I, I think that that's what's going on. So let me give you an example. An example, another example that we can consider is uh, the example of Adam and Eve. So if we think about Adam and Eve, you know that God put them in the garden, right? And he gave them one command, and that one command was what? That's right, stay away from that one tree. Don't eat from the tree 
of the knowledge of good and evil. So that was the one command. He put, this, uh, uh, he put them in this beautiful garden. It was perfect. They were perfect. Well, I mean, as perfect as perfect can be, not being God. He put them in there, and, and he said, you can eat of anything. You can basically go anywhere, but just don't eat from that one tree in the middle. Now, if we consider that, and we, we might picture God as kind of watching Adam and Eve. All right, let's see. What are they going to do? Oh, look how close... Look how close they got this time. Oh, good. He, they went away. All right. You know, and God kind of just watching how this is all going to play out. Um, but that's not really what happened. Because if we consider Christ, Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So before he had made any of it, Jesus Christ was to come and to be slain for the sin of mankind. So that was before Adam and Eve, that was before any creation. So Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, and then he creates the world, and then he comes to create Adam. So he creates Adam, and you might say, well, you know, God knows everything, so he can see down the road, down the future, and he can see if Adam is going to sin or not, and he sees that this Adam is going to sin, and so knowing that ahead of time, he creates, you know, well, he sets up this plan about Jesus being the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Well, that doesn't really work because God is the creator of Adam, right? So here's this Adam. Let's see. Should I create this Adam? Let me look to see what he's going to do. Uh, he's going to fall. Let me, how about this version of Adam? And he looks down the road. Well, now he's going to fall too. Here's another version of Adam. I'm going to make him and he's not going to uh, he's not going to want to eat that tree. And so, yeah, this is the one. I'm going to make him, and he's not going to eat from the tree. And so we don't need the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He's the creator, right? He can do that. He's the one who made Adam, and he could have made him any way that he wanted. Adam, he, he wasn't constrained to make Adam in a certain way, and it wasn't like, all right, let's uh, roll the dice and see what happens with this Adam. Uh, let's see how he comes out. It's just kind of a 50-50 chance. And, uh, you know, you have the father and the mother of all of us. And we're like 50-50 of our mother and our father. But uh, which 50 and, you know, which 50 do we get? Or what, what part of that do we get? It seems kind of random. Well, that's random for us, maybe. And maybe it's random for the physical processes. But God, the creator, when he comes to make Adam, there's no... There, there's no uh, uh, there, there's no uncertainty about it at all. He makes Adam like he wants. And he knows that Adam is going to sin. And we have Jesus, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, the thing is, is that Adam and Eve, they sinned. They ate the fruit completely uncompelled. They ate of their own will of their own volition. They were completely responsible for that act of sinfulness. God was not responsible at all. As a matter of fact, if God is responsible for anything, He's responsible for making a plan that would work out for the salvation of mankind in the end. That's what He has done. So we see God's sovereignty over it all, and yet within that, you have man who acts freely and uncompelled. Now, I say uncompelled, meaning none of us ever feel like, well, you know, God made me do that. You know what I mean? 
It's like, God, I, why did you do that? I don't know. I just kind of went into a, a, a haze there, and I just did it, and I wasn't even aware of that. And we, we never feel like that, right? You know what I'm saying? Well, what do we do? What is our, what is our uh, experience of life? Well, I take a step forward, and I know what God wants me to do, and I know what my flesh is kind of moving me to do, and I have to choose to believe in Him, and I have to have faith, and I have to trust in Him, and I, we strive for that, right? Whenever we read the Bible, it's just one exhortation after another. Whenever I preach, it's one exhortation after another. Look, guys, we got to live this Christian life, and, and so we're compelled to do it, and, and it's, uh, it's the exercise of our will. We have to choose. We have to believe. We have to have faith. And that's where all of this comes into play. That in our choice lay uh, the choices that lie before us. Okay, in those choices there, I, I have to strive and yield and, and try to walk in the Spirit in order to do the things that I'm supposed to do and stay away from the things that I'm not supposed to do. And so that's how, I, that's how it is going forward. Now, the, the funny thing is, and this is, this is my favorite um, example of how all of this seems to come together, at least in my mind. So going forward, I'm striving to have faith. But whenever we look back, what do we say? We look back at where we came from and, and uh, the things that we've gone through. What do we say about how we look back on our life in the past? What? Praise God. We thank God. We say He was with us. We say He guided us and directed us and protected us and provided for us. And God was in my life and He helped me, right? Now that's kind of looking back. Even though if we were to back up and go forward again, we'd be the ones striving and calling out to God for help and making all of the decisions. So, all that to say is that there is... God, who is in control, and He is sovereignly in control of all things, and within that sovereign control there is us, and we truly have the freedom to exercise our will, really, and rightly so, Uh, though I can't explain how that kind of reconciles together. So going back to the example of Adam, um, we actually read the verse about Pharaoh. Uh, Why does, the, the question the Bible puts is that if, if God makes a vessel for dishonor, like Pharaoh, the question that is put forward is, well, then why does God find fault? If God made him that way, then why does he find fault? And the response is not very satisfying to our, our uh, human sensibilities. It basically says this, um, who are you to question God? Will the clay say to the potter, why have you made me like this? And uh, that's not so satisfying, I think, if we're trying to find answers. But it shows our pride. That It's sort of a pride, like God, did, God uh, owes me an answer to this. That, that's kind of what our pride says. Come on, God, you owe me an answer. Explain this to me. But God doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't have to explain anything. He can do anything He wants. Alright, so that's, that's the understanding that we're coming at this, um, the, the angle that we're coming at this from. Any questions before we move on? Okay, just raise your hand if you've got a question. 
So we saw that God gives grace, and he gives grace to the entire world, but that doesn't mean that the entire world is saved, nor does it mean that just because a person receives the blessing that they are necessarily inclined to walk in God's ways or to choose him. Sometimes they do, and I think we are all testimony of the fact that God has moved in a gracious way in our lives, and praise the Lord, we yielded ourselves to him, we confessed our sins, and we believed in Jesus. And so we're saved, praise the Lord. Woohoo! All right, Anthony, I liked that. Yes. But uh, for, the, for the world at large there, that is not the case. God pours out the same grace. He causes the rain to fall and the sun to shine and uh, the blessings to uh, go forth. As a matter of fact, we might look at people around us and we might say, wow, you know, so-and-so, they're so nice. They're better than some Christians that I know. Have you ever thought that about some people out there? And we look at these unsaved people, and they're acting in such nice ways, and such good people, and, and uh, some Christians I know are just so much worse than that, and how can that be? And, and it's because there's a certain amount of grace that God pours out upon all people, and even the unsaved know how to give good gifts to those who love them, right? If his son asks for a fish, he's going to give him a rock? No, even the world knows not to do that. So the world walks in the grace of God, but that doesn't mean that they are saved. So God's grace can be resisted. This next point here, and this is where we're going to pick up, the possibility of being deceived. So let's look at a couple of verses here. The first passage of Scripture is Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 through 6. So here it says, Now, As he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when all these things, when will all these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered, he's talking to his disciples. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. So there is the possibility of deception. There is the possibility that a false Christ rises up and he does these miraculous things. And because he's doing these miraculous things and he's speaking in such uh, powerful and authoritative ways and he is uh, really charismatic and people are drawn to him that, and he says he's the Christ, that doesn't mean that he is the Christ. As a matter of fact, he's not. The Antichrist, when we come to the end times, this is exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. He's going to perform miracles. He is going to do all kinds of huge things on, uh, in, in the earth. He is going to draw people towards him, and he is going to set himself up as God, deceiving, even if possible, the very elect. And uh, so there's this, this possibility of deception. Um, that comes our way. So here's another verse. Well, this is a verse 6. I didn't have that up there. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars and see that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. And then uh, Matthew chapter 24, verses 11 through 13. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. So you might be tempted to say, well, you know, the people that are deceived are the ones who, they don't know God to begin with, and they're the ones, you know, who are going to be tricked. And, 
And, uh, and maybe that's part of the explanation that we have to give, you know, to try to reconcile some of these verses the best that we can. But here it says, it, it's talking about those who are not deceived, those who endure to the end, they are the ones who are going to be saved. So the implication is, well, you know, for the rest who maybe find, you know, find themselves deceived and, you know, their lawlessness abounds and their love grows cold, they don't endure to the end, they will not be saved. And so it seems to rest on the shoulders of the people. Will you be deceived or will you not be deceived and endure to the end? And if you're that person who is not deceived and you endure to the end, you will be saved. It seems to rest on the shoulders of the person. So you have deception uh, that you have to, to watch out against. You have the necessity of enduring to the end. All right? So you have the possibility of deception. Our next, our next uh, point here is conditional dis- decisions. Conditional decisions. If this, then that. That, that kind of thing. So, uh, so, so here it's, we're going to look at some verses and talk about salvation. And in these verses, it's like, well, if you do this, then you shall experience the salvation of God. It's the if-then kind of conditional choices that are before us. The first verse is uh, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. It says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Now that's pretty good right there. Describing what he has done for us. Once we were alienated and enemies because of our wicked works, but now he is reconciled through his flesh and through death. He has reconciled us in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So far, so good. Well, we come to the next verse, verse 23, and it says, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded, and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So you have this condition here. He has done this, and it's based, apparently, or so it seems, on this, well, if you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and you're not moved away, then that will be true for you. So again, it seems to rest upon our shoulder. Now, the word if in Greek can also be translated since. Um, it could be, it's the same word. It's just, there's just no one-to-one correspondence. It could be if you do this or since you do this. But either way, it doesn't really take away from the condition. So you are saved since you follow in the faith. Well, the idea is, well, if you don't, you're not going to be saved. So it really doesn't take away this dilemma of this condition that is left before us. So... Um, I do believe in the, in the security of the believer. Even though we're going through this, these verses, I believe in the security of the believer. But going back to what we were saying a moment ago, I, I believe that I'm saved, but that does not take away from me the responsibility of choosing Christ and living for Him in this life. And that's what I think these verses are kind of fleshing out. I'm still going forward, but as I look back and reflect back, I know that He is holding me in his hands, even though, again, I don't understand how that all comes together. So, here it is. I know 
that my salvation works itself out from the time that I believed, uh, in all my moments in the past, in this very moment, and in all the moments to come, my salvation continues to work itself out. I have to continue and will continue by God's grace to trust in Him completely. I will continue. I will be grounded. My hope is in Him, and I will experience the salvation that He made me to experience. And that's my hope. That's, that's before me. But I still have to go forward through it. All right, another verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 2, says, By which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you. Unless, now, you know, there's always a, that difficult verse, but, but there it is, unless you believed in vain. So the if since, which starts our verse here, by which you are saved since you hold fast, if you want to translate it that way, since you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So again, the if since doesn't really help us. So if you find that in your reading as kind of uh, explaining, trying to explain the verse away, it doesn't always satisfy because of this last phrase, unless you believed in vain. So, no matter how you want to cut it, there is this possibility of believing in vain, right? So, that that's kind of can be unsettling. But again, I'm going this way, I have to continue believing, right? It is the expression of my faith, my true faith. So, when we get to the when we get to the parts that the verses that talk about um, our security, we're going to kind of flesh this idea out, I think, um, the best that we can anyways. So, um, going forward, there's, a, there's a, the call to be faithful and to believe and to trust and to walk in His ways and to choose Him and to reject the sinfulness of the world and the sinfulness of the flesh. That's before me. All right, any, other, any questions so far or comments? Our next point here is uh, this idea of apostasy. Apostasy. Now, apostasy is, is uh, the falling away, and usually it's described as falling away from the faith with no hope of, of uh, recovery or reconciliation or coming back to Christ. It's along the same lines of uh, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So there's no forgiveness for the one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit. So the question is, well, what is, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? And, and um, just since I brought up the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, I think the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is not that you necessarily utter a curse from your mouth against the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is the continual hard-hearted response to the work of Christ in your life or the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that he convicts the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So the Holy Spirit is, is out um, making this to every single person, convicting the whole world of their sin and of the righteousness and of the judgment to come. He's convicting them. And if somebody continues to reject the work of the Holy Spirit, because after all, we were saved because we yielded ourselves to the Spirit of God who was coming in our hearts and convicting us of our sins. And we saw ourselves as, as, as sinners and we heard the truth of the gospel, the, the need to 
uh, ask for forgiveness and to believe in Jesus and to receive salvation. So we responded to that. But for the person who continues to reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit in their heart and in their lives time and time again through the course of their life, there comes a point where there is no more salvation that is available to that person. They have hardened their heart. And like the uh, parable of the sower in the Gospel of Luke, they have hardened their heart. It is, it is uh, hard. The word falls on it, and the devil snatches it away lest they be saved. That's how it puts it in Luke. So uh, that's, that's, to me, that's what the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. But we're not really talking about that. We'll have to save that for another night. So anyway, you have this idea of apostasy, and apostasy is attached to that, and it refers to falling away, never to come back to Jesus, all right? So it's a, it's a pretty sobering and uh, serious um, thing to fall into, this idea of apostasy. And um, let's look at a couple of verses. First of all, yeah, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, this refers to the humility that we have to continue to have before Christ. It says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And we know the other verse that says pride comes before destruction, right? And a haughty spirit before fall. There is this need to be humble before God. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. So there's this, this uh, encouragement from Scripture not to be proud ever, before God, we must humble ourselves before Him and receive His forgiving uh, work and receive His grace and walk in His grace. So this is just kind of a caution. If uh, you think you stand, then be careful because that comes before the fall. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. So here in this encouragement, there's the, the word that goes forth, and I believe it's Paul who wrote Hebrews, but whoever wrote Hebrews, God is the author of Hebrews, um, he says that make sure you take hold of the things that you have heard. Keep them so you don't drift away. So there's a possibility of drifting away. Another passage, Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, says, Beware, brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So the idea of deceitfulness comes back in here. Sin deceives us. Do not allow your heart to be hardened. Today is the day of salvation. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. So another passage here that uh, warns against falling away and the necessity of coming to Christ continually. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27. But I, this is Paul talking, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should be to become disqualified. Well, that's a pretty sobering verse right there that Paul is sharing. And then uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible for those 
who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. So there's a, there's a lot of uh, salvation kind of lingo going on here. And of course, uh, for those of us who believe in the security of the believer, this is one of the, the most challenging of the verses because you have to talk about, well, what does it mean to be enlightened? And what does it mean to taste of the heavenly gift? And what does it mean to become partakers of the Holy Spirit? What does all that mean? How could you lose that? It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Now, I have to say that for those who believe you can lose your salvation, the, the prevailing attitude is, well, I'm saved and then I'll lose my salvation and I'm, I can become I repent and I lose my salvation and I backslide and then I repent again and I come to Him and, you know, you kind of go back and forth. But according to this verse, once you've been saved, if you lose that, there is no coming back. So for those who believe that they can lose their salvation, this is uh, an equally challenging verse here. And this is uh, more along the lines of apostasy. So you don't have the opportunity to repent again. If, if you've been saved and you reject it, if that's, assuming that's possible, you can't just come back again after that, according to this verse. So... Uh, that's Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 27. says, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. First uh, Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. So uh, when we consider Scripture and we uh, consider the possibilities, some of the possibilities of apostates, um, now this was something that came up in the first week, but uh, there was maybe Saul in the Old Testament. Um, there's an interesting passage about King Saul it says, now you know Saul was anointed king, so he became king. God had chosen him specifically and set him, set him up as king. But then he sinned by making the sacrifice. He didn't wait for Samuel to come, and he offered the sacrifice, and he shouldn't have done it, and God rejected him at that point. But the verse says, if you had, I'm just paraphrasing here, if you had not sinned against me, I would have established your house forever. I would have established your throne forever. Now whose throne did God end up establishing forever. David. But it sounded like God would have done it for Saul if he had not fallen away. So that's a pretty, uh, that's pretty uh, sobering verse there concerning Saul and his life. You have Judas, of course, who was chosen by Jesus to be one of the disciples, and uh, he was the son of perdition. I think um, um, he's... He's one of two people in the scriptures that it says that Satan himself possessed him. Judas and the Antichrist are, are the two. So, uh, and then there's Hymenaeus and Alexander. I don't know if they were apostate or not, but the, the verse against them is pretty strong. It says here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, it says, Having faith and a good conscience, 
which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So that could be as simple as just uh, allowing the devil in their lives to give them a hard time because of their sin for a little while, but then they came back. Or it could mean, well, you know, I turned them over to the devil and they are now his. All right? So uh, those are all the points concerning the... Those are all the conditional verses um, for salvation. Now, if we were talking about one or two verses, we could, and you're a security of the believer kind of person, if there were just one or two of these verses, you could just say, well, you know, let's, let's look at this, and it cannot mean this. You know, we have to look at all the Scripture, and, and it must mean something else. But there, there are just way too many, and I haven't, even, I haven't even mentioned all of them. There are more than this. So I, I think the safer route is to say, okay, I still believe in the security of the salvation. Now, what is the relationship of God's sovereignty to free will? And that's the age-old question that we have to answer. But we can't just dismiss it as, well, God is sovereign and, you know, I have nothing to do with it. Well, God is sovereign, but I do have something to do with it. Um, I have to strive for the faith. But yet, None of us are saved by our works, and none of us are maintained by our works. Yet I have to strive for works, right? So that, that's kind of the dilemma there. All right, any questions or comments or thoughts or Tyson? Potter decides so on. I think so. <laughs> so so if the potter decides to make the, the vessel for honor or dishonor, he can also unmake uh, a vessel from that was made for dishonor into something that is can be used for honor. Um. So so do you do you still have because we still have a choice. You say you said we still have a choice, so is that choice tied up in the the, the idea of repentance? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I, I, can't, I can't find... Now, we're talking about an analogy here of the potter making you know, one pot unto honor and another pot unto dishonor. Uh, it's an analogy, and so as all analogies go, it's not, there's no, it's not a perfect analogy. But whenever that analogy is given, there is no, well, you know, I'm going to break this vessel and remake it into a, a vessel fitting for me. And then re-break it, and well, you know, now I'm going to you know, unmake it and make it a vessel of honor. Um, I don't know. I, I think the point of the analogy is that God makes the pot as he wants it. And, and that's it. He, he just makes it as he wants it. So that doesn't mean that, okay, well, here's a, here's a vessel. I am making it for honor. Let's, let's take myself, for example, all right? So he's made me from the, the foundation of the world. He has made me for salvation, now, that doesn't mean that, you know, my jar doesn't get broken and I got to put the pieces back together and I'm Humpty Dumpty and I sat on the wall and I fell over and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put me back together again. But God can and he has to because that's my only hope. So it doesn't, so it doesn't mean that, you know, I'm, I'm not broken and then remade and shaped and God is directing me here and he leads me here and he forgives me of this sin and I go through all of this, you know, back and forth breaking and unbreaking kind of thing. But he made me a vessel of honor, and in the end, that's where I will be. 
So I don't know if we want to press that too far. He, he has made each one of us as he sees fit. And then during the course of our life, it just kind of manifests that. That, that, that just kind of uh, manifests itself out or plays itself out. Philip? The reason we're using the microphone is for, this, for, the, for those who are watching online. They can't hear you when you ask your questions unless you're speaking into the microphone. All right, Philip. So I guess my thought would be the vessel for honor or dishonor is the end product. Right. Um, so what, as, the, as he's shaping it, you know, he may squish it down and kind of start over again or whatever, but when it's put through the fire, yeah. that at the end of our time, that is when it's final. Yeah. What... That, that's how I would, I would see it as the final, the end destiny or, you know, the end purpose for which you were created. Um, now, God doesn't have to squish it down. So, in other words, I'm not being formed through the course of my life. May, I, I mean, I've seen it as, well, before I was born, he made me a vessel of honor or dishonor. And, uh, and that is a reference to my salvation, not to the the goodness or, you know, the positive or the negative of the course of my life, which is going to be broken because of sin. But he made me his child, and that's where I will end. Yeah. All right. Did that answer your question or? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Any other questions or comments? Okay. All right, well, let's pray. We're going to end right there then. And next time, we will look at the verses of security. And, and so we'll go to the next point there. Salvation is secure, and we'll look at all those verses. See, we've, we've looked at all the verses where it seems like our salvation is conditional, and it's a lot. And you look at them, and you think, oh, no, you know, I think it re- this is what it really is like. I, I might lose my salvation Well, we're going to come to the next one, and there's a whole lot of verses there as well. And so that's what the—that's where the tension lies. That's—that's why you can't just—it's not just one or two verses on either side. There's a lot of verses, and so you have to deal with the tension and try to come to a a resolution as best you can. And I'm a weak vessel in in doing this, so just to let you know, you can uh, read some of the other uh, people that write some of the theology books and and get more, um, you know, a a laid out argument for all of these things. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. Oh, Lord, from these verses that we've seen tonight, we know just in experience, we, we can be deceived and we reject your grace. And a lot of times we go astray and we backslide and we allow sin to come in and and we ask for forgiveness and we get up and we brush the dust off and we try again and we keep on going forward. Lord, that is our experience of faith and that is the exhortation that comes to us to yield to your spirit and not to our flesh. And Lord, it humbles us and it causes us to see that we can't do it on our own. That there is no salvation in what I do, in my choices. I have to cast myself upon you And I throw myself on you and I trust in the blood fully. That is my only hope, your blood that was shed for the forgiveness of my sins. 
Apart from that, I have no hope. But praise you, O Lord, that you have done it for us. You have loved us with a love that is incomprehensible. You have poured out your grace in, uh, in an amazing way. You have brought salvation to our lives. And we exalt you and magnify you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.